This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. I have a weakness in my spiritual life, and at sometimes it could be deemed a strength. It's the way most weaknesses are. They, uh, they show up when you least want them to. But my weakness is that I have a tendency to take every day as the same. And it's a strength, too. Don't get me wrong. In other words, I want to love my wife every day of the year, not just on Valentine's Day. And so you can say, well done, Eric. However, I have a tendency to not make Valentine's Day anything more special than the day before. It's like, well, I love you every day. And that is a statement to my wife, if I diminish a day, it doesn't say something as strongly as it should. Yes, Eric, you should love your wife every day. That's wonderful. However, when this day rolls around, just know this is a day where the wife looks towards her husband and says, so? Well, I, I love you better than any other guy loves his wife every other day. Yeah, and then you stink it up on this one? In other words, there are certain days that are hallmarked. For instance, your children have birthdays. And birthdays may not mean as much to you when you start to crest certain ages. Uh, may I mention 40? But once you get to that age, now suddenly you start to diminish birthdays in your life. However, don't do that for your children. Those days are very special, and you treat them with an extra special vigor. And it's not because you don't love them every other day. And so when it comes to days like Easter, resurrection morning, Eric has a propensity to treat it like every other day. It's like, hey, I'm a good Christian. I celebrate the resurrection every day. When all the rest of you are not celebrating it, guess who's celebrating? And so when this day comes around, there's a propensity to say, look, I've been celebrating this every day of the year. I don't want us to make a bigger deal out of the resurrection because you know, that makes it seem like we're not supposed to do it every day of the year. When the exact opposite is true, you know that God created a calendar. He invented how these days were supposed to be hallmarks so that we could have an extra special remembrance, just like a birthday that we could cherish something and see it in even a greater luster and to see more virtue in it. And so even though I have a weakness in this area, I sense the Spirit of God is working on me to remember, to remember in a more vigorous way in the manner that he is teaching me to. That he says, well, Eric, this day is important to me. And it's like, well, doesn't it matter every day of the year? Of course. But this is a day set aside to celebrate it set aside out of all the other days to remember it with greater vigor. All right, God, I think I'm getting this. So today I want us to set this day aside with greater vigor. We know, those of us that are Christians, that this day isn't just about eggs and bunny rabbits. That's not what this day is about. This day to us as Christians hallmarks a new life, a new beginning. The name of this message is very critical to today, death-defying. The idea of what death-defying is, when you hear that, I mean, I, I actually, when I was sitting down this morning and I was making the final decision on 
what the title should be. I already had this title. But my first thought is when I hear the words death defined, I think of evil Knievel. Now, I don't know, you'd have to have some years on you to know who evil Knievel is. Back in the late 60s, early 70s, he was the guy. And he was doing death-defying acts. And so he was jumping over semi-trucks. He was jumping over some fountain uh, in Las Vegas. I'm not exactly sure. I didn't see it all, but I was extremely fascinated as a little kid. For one of my Christmas presents, I got an evil Knievel doll. And, you know, you wound it up. It was on a motorcycle, and he'd go shooting off, and I'd have him jump over things. And he was considered death-defying. And actually, he gained and procured the admiration of the masses because he was willing to stare death in the face and defy it, sort of spit on it. And yet this man had a life that I would not encourage any of you to model. He was evil Knievel. He was not life. He was not a picture of love, of blessing. We have someone else to admire. And his name is Jesus Christ, who stared death in the face and won. Evil Knievel stared death in the face and lost. Yeah, it's impressive. I have to admit, most of us cower before death, before daring feats, before a guillotine blade that may land on our neck to still stand and say, will you not recant? Most of us want to shrink. However, Jesus stared it in the face and won. And what you're going to see if you ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs is that those that follow in his train, those that have been changed by his life, that have stared at that empty tomb, have been changed to do the same, to defy death itself, to not cower, to not shrink back when it works its worst on you, to say, I know that you are, in fact, defeated. So a study in the power of resurrected living, the extraordinary attitude, to die is gain. This is an attitude of mindset. Now, I know there's another half to this scripture that those of you that are well-bred in Christianity know. To live is Christ, Paul says. But the part I want you to recognize today is that Paul's attitude towards death isn't, whoa, uh uh-oh, not death. If I die, Paul says, it's advantage to me. You see, death has no sting. Death has no grip anymore. I do not fear it. Therefore, when I die, it is actually greater for me. What I enter into is a greater life. I have life now, but it's a greater life when I die. And that's the mentality of Christianity. Revelation 12, and they overcame him, speaking of our great adversary, the devil, Satan, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Now, I put the NIV translation. This is what I grew up with. And I actually, I've looked at every translation on this, and this, to me, just says it the best. And it's still, so I have to stick it in. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. So when they faced death, they did not love their life here on this earth so much that they would shrink back. But they boldly went forward. These are the ones purchased by that blood of the Lamb. They handle the scariest, most difficult, most dreadful situations in life completely different than everyone else. And if you study Christian history, you'll see it. Who are these people? Everyone else on earth shrinks back. You can take the strongest uh, military personnel, the strongest athletes, and still when it comes to their death, they can become like little children weeping. You see, 
you can be strong when it comes to hitting an offensive lineman. You can be strong when it comes to jumping over semis. However, when it comes to facing true death, separation from God for all eternity, when it comes to that, every single one of us becomes weak need. So who are these that literally rise up and in the face of death boldly march, even with songs on their lips? Who are these? When you do well and suffer for it and you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. Now, when you see those words, you take it patiently, that might not ring a bell with you, that might not resonate with you. It's like, so you take it patiently? Our idea of patience is standing in front of a microwave and not complaining when it takes a minute to finally ding and our popcorn is done. It's like, okay, I'm going to have patience here. However, the idea of patience in Scripture is an endurance of soul. It's a muscle of soul that is able to endure the hardest situations, the most difficult of scenarios, and not bend, not break, not shrink back. This is actually what is considered a fruit of the Holy Spirit. So when the life of God enters into us, he actually gives us something known as patience. Now for most of us, since we don't know what patience is, we don't appreciate this gift. But we need to realize that we have been gifted something by the grace of God so that we could stand firm, so that we could face trials, so that we could face difficulties, so that we could defy the greatest challenges we'll ever face in our life and know that they are overcome by one greater than us. And so we will not shrink back. Death just happens to be the symbol of the, gra- of the greatest challenge we will ever face. However, every sub-challenge under death still has been overcome. There is no challenge that is greater than the God that we serve. Greater is he that is in us than he that will come against us in this world, than any obstacle we will ever face. We have that great gift, and it's called patience of all things. And so... We take it patiently, and when we handle things with patience, which I'll explain in just a second, it says this is acceptable with God. So our word in the Greek is hupomeno. My simple definition is it's the brave calm of the soul. It's the steadfast courage of the Christian soul. So when you hear about these Christians who were being fed to wild beasts, who were being pinned to crosses, that would not recant, that would refuse to say Caesar is Lord. All they had to do was say the word Caesar is Lord and they'd be set free. What is it that these men and women had that would literally, like Viva Perpetua, who would literally give up her newborn baby and walk into the arena and die for Jesus? Who does that? What is going on inside of this mindset? You see, they had something known as hupomeno. It was a gift of grace to them. They saw the value in Jesus Christ and they were willing to forsake all earthly things. And when they entered that arena, they were marked by a brave calm, a steadfast courage. There was something that enveloped them that was otherworldly and those that looked on were in shock and awe. There was one story in Fox's Book of Martyrs where a man who was a pagan who hated God, blasphemed God, saw the steadfast courage of the Christians being fed to lions, and he shouted out, it says, in a form of ecstasy, great is the God of the Christians! And they grabbed him and threw him into the arena with them, and he ended up dying that day. Just in being honest with what he was seeing, great is the God of the Christians! Is that what they say when they see you you facing your obstacles in life? Great is the God of the Christians! This is what we have. 
So hupomeno, to remain unmoved, to not recede or flee, to stand fast amidst the most severe misfortunes and trials and to hold fast one's faith in Christ to the end, to endure and bear ill treatments bravely and calmly. Following the example, facing death like Jesus. So when we face death, the encouragement I want you to have is that we are to face it the way Jesus faced the cross. And you can say, well, he's God, okay? I mean, he can do it uh, in this great way, but I'm, I'm not. And you're right. That's a good assessment of your life. You are not God. However, God has been given to you so that you can have him as clothing and he can enter into you so that you can behave in this body the way he would. And so we actually can follow his example and face death, face trial, face difficulty the same way Jesus faced it. When you do well and suffer for it and you take it with hupomeno, patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were you called. You were called to face trials, difficulties, even death with patience. This is what you were called to. You were called to do this. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. There is a model of patience. There's a model of hupomeno that has been laid out before us. So you see Jesus? Yeah, but I mean, that's pretty incredible. He says, that's the way I want you to live in your life. Death defying. I want you to defy that which opposes your soul. I do not want you to cower before it. I want you to recognize something. That the one who has gone before you has done the work. Stephen was stoned. These are all the followers of Jesus, by the way. Philip was crucified. Matthew was slain with a sword. James, the brother of Jesus, was stoned and clubbed. Matthias was stoned and beheaded. Mark was dragged to pieces. Jude was crucified. Bartholomew was cruelly beaten and then crucified. Thomas was thrust through with a spear. Luke was hung. Simon Peter was crucified. And John was thrown into a cauldron of boiling oil and removed unscathed and then exiled to Patmos. So you can say, I just want to be John in that story. At least he didn't die a martyr's death. Well, he lived a martyr's life. Could you imagine a pot of boiling oil? And you're like, all right, I think my end has come. He's thrown into the pot of boiling oil, and it doesn't touch him. He's just sort of hanging out in a pot of boiling oil, and so they take him out. Not a hair on his body was singed. They're like, what do we do with this guy? So they stuck him on an island. Just get him out of here, okay? He's destroyed, turning the nations on its head. Get him out of here. You see, this is the path that those that follow Jesus Christ have walked. And yet every single one of them, if you were to read their stories, you would stand back in awe and say, great is the God of the Christians. Your first instinct is to feel sorry for him. Your first instinct is to feel sorry for Jesus. You need to realize these men were on a mission. They were revealing the kingdom of heaven. They were revealing the patience of God. They were showcasing that death can be defied and that you can literally with a laugh, with a smile, with a song, with a leap, face the greatest fears in your life and that God has overcome them. The apostle Andrew. So as the story goes in Christian history, this isn't in the, the Bible, this is in uh, Christian history and the legends of Christian history is that Andrew, uh, the apostle, so one of the uh, 12 apostles, was brought in before Governor Aegeus, and Governor Aegeus was furious because Andrew was preaching about Jesus and this cross, and the nations were being turned on their head, and the power of God was backing him up. And so he sets down, sets down Andrew across from him and says, 
uh, if you don't stop preaching about this Jesus and this cross, I'm going to crucify you on one too. So how do you handle such a circumstance? When death stares you in the face, when suffering faces you, how do you handle it? Do you handle it like Andrew? You know what it says that Andrew said in response? I would have dared not preach the glory of the cross of Christ if I was not first willing to die upon it. You say, that's not what you say, Andrew. You say, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. I would have dared not preach the glory of the cross of Christ if I was not first willing to die upon it. So the governor blew a fuse and took Andrew out and crucified him, tied him to an X cross, two beams of wood like this, and he hung there for three days. Hung there, every bone out of joint. The whole three days he preached Jesus to everyone that passed by. The saints of God didn't want to lose the apostle, so they pled with the governor, take him down, take him down, let him go. He's hung there three days. Whatever penance is needed, he's done it. And when Andrew caught wind of that, he cried out to heaven and says, Dear Lord Jesus, I have spent my time among men. Take me home to be with you. And that's how he left. It's like, I like that. Great is the God of the Christians. Peter, Peter, as it says in the Fox's Book of Martyrs, Jerome says that Peter was crucified, his head being down and his feet upward, himself so requiring because he said, because he was, he said, unworthy to be crucified after the same form and manner as the Lord was. As the story goes, Peter is being led to his execution. I don't know how you're feeling when you're being led to your execution. Most of us have never been. Okay, I probably assume that none of us have been in that situation. <laughs> If you're being led to this end, death is staring you in the face. It's jowls open. It's salivating. It said, I'm going to have you for dinner tonight. It is mocking you, saying you're weak, you're helpless. You cannot stop what is in front of you. When most of us face such a circumstance, maybe I should just say it this way, all of us face such a circumstance, we naturally will shrink. If an arrow was coming straight at you, what would you do? You would pull away. How many of you walk towards it? You just don't do that. That isn't human. However, something is so grand that has taken place inside of these Christians that when they face these moments, they don't shrink back but actually step forward with boldness. Peter, seeing that he was going to be crucified as was Christ. This is what you get, Peter. You preach this cross, you're going to hang on one too. To not disparage the work of Jesus... And to not at all show disrespect to it, he begs to be crucified upside down. Lest he dishonor and take away from the work of his Lord. He chose, get this people, he chose a more painful death to honor Jesus. Paul says in Fox's Book of Martyrs, the soldiers came and led him out of the city to the place of execution where he, after his prayers made, gave his neck to the sword. Here, guys, here's my neck. He faced death with a brave calm and a steadfast courage. Great is the God of the Christians. These men all knew something. You see, there's something that ties all of these stories together. They knew something. And the question I want to lay before all of us is, do we know the same thing? But what is it that they knew? These men were all given a sign. That's what the Bible calls it, a sign. The sign of Jonah. You see, Jesus says that he's not going to give 
what all the people are clamoring for. He's going to give one singular sign in this generation. It's called the sign of Jonah. And we're like, okay, what is that? And we know who Jonah is, but what? That's going to be the sign? And I'm telling you that these men saw that sign. And that sign did something to them. It changed them so that they would face death differently. You say, what does the sign of Jonah have to do with that that would make men do things like this? The sign of Jonah. But he, Jesus, answered and said unto them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but there shall be no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, a greater than Jonah is here. So, I mean, most of us know this. I mean, if you've grown up with your Sunday school background, you know Jesus was three days and three nights in the earth, and Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. And All right, okay, I see that. And, you know, so what, what's the big deal? I mean, is that it? Is that the sign that would lead men literally to lay down their lives and to face death with such boldness and audacity? Is that it? Because you already know that, yet you're not ready to face death with that same audacity. What's missing? What did they know about that sign that you may not? Strangely, the sign was a man. When you think of a sign, you think of some like firework or something, some like thing off to the side, like, ooh, that's a sign, a portent. And yet the sign was a man. As Jonah was a sign unto the Ninevites, so shall also the Son of Man be to this generation. Jonah was a sign? How was Jonah a sign? He's just a Jewish prophet who shows up, and the Ninevites know Jews, and they hate Jews, and they'll kill you. So why didn't they kill Jonah? I mean, there's, if you understood Nineveh, you would, you would understand that there's no way that this Jew is going to just walk around freely in their city and preach. There's no way that that's going to happen. Nineveh is the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire ruled for a hundred years and anything that dared stand against it would just be quashed. This is called the bloody city by the prophet Nahum. They literally worshipped lust. They killed for pleasure. And we're going to believe that a prophet just sort of strolled in their midst and preached and that they all repented? That doesn't even make sense. Even historically, there's no way to grasp this. You see, these men in Nineveh received a sign. And this sign was a man named Jonah. Now, if you saw a man named Jonah, I don't know that you would just fall over and repent. What was it about this man? And as Jonah was assigned in Nineveh, so Jesus is assigned. What is it about this one that is greater than Jonah? that changes people's lives, that caused them to stretch out their neck, say, no, don't crucify me in a manner that's already painful. I choose a more painful death. What causes Andrew to say, I would not have dared preach the glory of this cross if I was not first willing to die on it? What causes these men to walk into arenas even while they're being eaten? Praise God. What causes Ignatius to declare that those lions that are going to eat him as his friends, for they're going to lead him into the presence of the one he loves. What do these men know about this sign? This one known as Jesus. What do they see that we don't? What did the Ninevites see in Jonah that we don't see in the history? What, what is missing? 
What was the sign of Jonah unto the Ninevites? Introducing the great fish. So I'm not going to go into it as I have in some past messages, but Nineveh, in its most basic definition in the Phoenician language, means house of the fish or fish in the house. Now, I don't know if that sounds like a very pleasant place to live. It's the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, so Nineveh is not a nation in and of itself. So when Jonah is called to Nineveh, it's the equivalent of saying, I'm calling you to Washington, D.C. It symbolizes the entire nation, or Jerusalem, which would symbolize all of Israel. Okay, when you're called to Nineveh, you're called to the Assyrian people, but you're called to the very capital. It's like saying, I want you to go to ISIS headquarters. That's the equivalent of what Jonah's call was. And if you understood that, if you got a little note from God today that says, I want you to get on a plane and go to the ISIS headquarters, you would be thinking about going to Tarshish yourself. In other words, it's actually very reasonable if you understand the nature of this call, why Jonah would have no interest in doing it. However, God had a purpose. God has a heart that most of us cannot comprehend. And he is willing to go to the hardest hearts the most difficult situations to bring that love to bear. So introducing the great fish. Now, we know in the story of Jonah that there's a great fish. I mean, that, we know that. It, some people call it a whale. In fact, I've even seen translations that call it a whale. It actually doesn't say a whale. It doesn't say a great shark. It just says a great fish. And technically, it's just, even in the Hebrew, I mean, I'm going to say the best translation would be fish. I'm not going to argue that. However, it's some monster-sized fish. This is like sea creature material. Okay, now when we always try in our modern day to figure this one out, we go to whales and, and things like that. However, there seems to be something about a fish and Nineveh. Nineveh is the house basically ruled by a fish. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not scared of fish. Okay, so I'm not thinking, you know, uh-oh, is the fish coming to get me? Oh, we cannot beat the fish. To me, there's no concern about a fish, okay? Fish to me are, I mean, a whale, for instance, is a nice creature. I mean, I'm not, I'm going to pet it. You know, it's going to jump out of the water at the sea world, and I'm going to feed it a fish. I'm not going to be going, no, and go running. If I was going to do that, I wouldn't show up at sea world in the first place. <laughs> and so, in other words, this fish can be tamed. And so, as we sort of walk through the histories of this, there's something that would actually help us understand a little more about it. And that is, let's just use our imagination for a bit and imagine that this great fish is something a little more scary than you may understand. So I have a little picture. <laughs> this is a super croc uh, type of thing my boys love. Uh, they love the super croc, 40 feet long. Could you imagine from like here to the very back door, the entry uh, doors back there? It's just like one enormous crocodile. You know, there's a character in scripture known as Leviathan, and a lot of people would say it could be this, and it was a sea monster, it was a sea creature. So I'm not saying that I could argue and prove that that's what it is. However, just for the sake of your soul today, I would like you to process and understand that what Nineveh feared wasn't the surrounding nations, wasn't a Jewish prophet. They didn't fear that at all. What they feared was something that controlled them, something that if that lived in your backyard... You might not be feeling too comfortable going outside either. You don't fear any of the surrounding nations, but you do fear that. Uh, the, the, the super croc? Yeah, I don't know about you. Look at that triceratops. That guy's a goner. And you're 150th of his size. <laughs> Could you imagine? You're the size of one of his teeth. This is a scary thing. 
Imagine having something like that living near you. So we may not have the super croc in our backyards, but we do have something. We do have something that paralyzes us and that strikes us with fear. We have things that hold us back. We have things in this life that we will not move forward and do in obedience to God even because we are concerned. Maybe it's public opinion. Maybe it's the fear of what others think. Maybe it's fear itself. Maybe it's lacking resource. I don't want to be like my parents growing up. They never had money, and I'm scared to be in that situation. Maybe it's divorce. You're so scared. You remember what divorce was like growing up, and so it haunts you in front of you, and you find yourself making decisions in light of this fear, in light of this super crock in your life. And so as a result, it's affecting your life, and you have become the house that holds a worship service and adores in sort of a weird way and pay, you know, sprinkles incense on whatever deity this is that you cower before. And so in this house is a fish called Nineveh. And it's a place where they serve and they worship. However, we have something that is more insipid because you can't always see it, and it's called sin. Sin and the flesh is what Paul describes it as in the New Testament. So they had the house of the fish, we have the house of the flesh. And in the house of the flesh, you have things that have always held you down. Say lust. Can't tell you how many men in this room understand what I mean when I say that. And as a result, it's sort of like, who's going to take down the super croc? No one's going to take down lust in this generation either. How about fear? Some of you literally have such a binding uh, control and are under the thumb of such a, a fervent power of anxiety and fear. And you may hate this enemy, and you may know it shouldn't rule you, but you don't know how to conquer it. And so you've become the house of it. You've become the house that pays incense to it and will sprinkle whatever is needed to try and satisfy this deity because you have subjected yourself to it. Well, Nineveh, for whatever reason, had a fish in the house. And whether or not we can understand that, it is very fascinating that the name of that city is House of the Fish or Fish in the House, And it just so happens that there's a sign that is coming to it that involves a fish. Come and see, O Ninevites. And so I'm going to use our imagination here because that's the only way we can really deal with the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah is a strange book. The book of Jonah is written by Jonah, but Jonah is in obstinate disobedience to God throughout the book. Why is he even writing it down? It doesn't make him look good at all. In fact, he ends the book in defiance. And God's like, that's canon. That belongs in my Bible. I mean, the whole thing about that book is just strange. I mean, why would God, why is that? And yet God is saying in Jesus Christ in the New Testament, the one sign you're going to get is found in that book. So that book becomes critical for our understanding of what Jesus's ministry is and how we believe what he did was true. Come and see, O Ninevites. Now, this is a pretty poor Photoshop (laughs) rendition. I took that same creature. And what I did is I'm using my imagination here. And I'm basically saying that this creature under the command of God was forced not only to digest Jonah, but then to spew him back up. And when he did, I imagine, even though it doesn't say this, that he is stuck in that position and he dies in that position with his mouth ajar his mouth agape, yawning in defeat. And so what we have on the shorelines of the Tigris River, because Nineveh was right on the Tigris River, 
where Jonah was likely spat up, is the evidence that that which they have always trembled before lies dead and defeated. And there in the sand, you see where Jonah's body probably landed, and you see his feet trailing off, maybe with some juices, uh, internal digestive juices of the creature. Okay, we don't need to use our imagination any further than that. However, why was Jonah a sign? This one city that feared nothing but maybe a fish, a, let's just use, because that doesn't scare us, maybe a super croc, actually has seen something. What is it? Uh, Come and see, guys. Come and see what? You're not going to believe this. Uh, Not going to believe what? You know that super croc uh, that we tremble before that's literally eaten half our city? Uh, He lies dead on the shores of the Tigris. Come and see. You just need to see this. You just need to see this. You see, if you came down to the Tigris River and you saw that that which you feared most was actually defeated and the man that spat, was spat up by him is walking around just fine, what are you going to think about that man who obviously overcame that which you feared most? Who are you? I have a message for you. All right. I think I might listen to it because he has defeated their greatest foe and he doesn't seem the worst for the wear. What is this? How in the world did this work? The sign of Jonah. So imagine messengers running through the city yelling, that great fish that controls us doesn't control him. The great fish is subservient to this man. The great fish is at the command of this man's God. The great fish is under this man's God's feet. For this man's God has proven in and through this prophet's restoration back to life from the great fish's belly that he is indeed master of the great fish. Cinevah. So instead of Nineveh, we don't live in Nineveh. We live in Cinevah, the city of destruction, as John Bunyan called it. We live in a world. It's a city, and it's not called the house of the fish, but it is the house of the flesh. It's the house of sin. We are all born into it. And we tremble in fear before this yawning, gaping, tooth-filled mouth that mocks us and says, I have you. If you have sinned, you are my dinner in the future. Maybe not today, but soon. And you are legally, justly to be fed to him. You have no choice in the matter. You have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, all of us are under like condemnation in this world and vulnerable to that great fish. The house of sin, or sin is in the house, and that's the revelation of the gospel to us. First, the bad news. The bad news is you're born into Cinevah. You're a citizen or a resident of Cinevah. What does that mean? That means that something owns you and possesses you. That means you live under the thumb of sin and death. You see, the wages of sin is death. And so if you live in Cinnabar, the wages of being a citizen there is certain death. So the messengers of the law run throughout the city of destruction and yell. You see, how do we even know that we're in Cinnabar? It's a, it's a funny thing, but the bad news is not something we want to hear. Good news only makes sense, though, when you understand bad news. So God gave us a law. It's called the Law of Moses. And the law of Moses runs throughout the land and proclaims that truth, life, the presence of God is not to be had by any that are darkened by the shadow of this behavior. 
Because God cannot participate with sin. He is holy and we are not. He is other than us. And so the law, what it does, it shows us that we are actually living in a darkened realm and that we are under a just condemnation and that there is a super crock that is feeding on our life and that it surrounds us and it soon will devour us. So what do the messengers of the law run through the city of destruction and yell? You are all under sin's control. Its wage is certain death. Your rebellion against God has issued the flesh legal right within your bodies to rule over your appetites so that you cannot do as you want to do. Darkness is your eternal destiny. The grave yawns with eager expectation to devour you and to savor your soul forever. The sign of Jonah. So let's understand what was given to the Ninevites and what was given to us. The sign of Jonah, the death of the man. Jonah 1. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. Then said they unto him, What shall we do unto thee that the sea may be calm unto us? Now in the story, Jonah is found to be in disobedience to God. So this whole situation, this whole uh, tempest that they are in, is defined as the result of disobedience. So as a result, those that are on the ship are vulnerable because of this disobedience. Yet to solve this issue, Jonah offers a solution. And that is that one man can be given to save the rest. And you need to realize how profound this story is. It's a story of a mere man in history past. And yet what it demonstrates is such a palpable, clear picture of the life of Jesus. Then said they unto him, what shall we do unto thee that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea wrought and was tempestuous. And he said unto them, take me up and cast me forth into the sea. Jesus steps forward and says, take me. Take me instead of them. Cast me forth. I will become sin. I will become the penalty. The judgment of God can come on me to quiet this sea and to save them. So shall the sea be calm unto you, for I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. One man given to save the others. The sign of Jesus, the death of the man. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He was thrown overboard. And he was swallowed up by the great fish. He became sin for us. That which had ruled Nineveh literally swallows up Jonah. He, Jesus, was swallowed up by a death that was our deserved end. We were meant to be swallowed by that great fish. That was the just penalty for what we did. And when we are swallowed up, the others are saved. Jesus gives his life in our place to save others. But it's the very symbol of that which controls Nineveh that swallows him up. The sign of Jonah, part two, the burial of the man. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. It's an amazing thought to think of this fish being prepared by God for such a time as this. I mean, you've heard of the ram in the thicket that just happens to be caught in the bush at the very time that Abraham's raising his knife above Isaac. And God says, stop. There was, there's a need of a sacrifice. Well, there's one. You just see this ram being brought up by the presence of God, by the Spirit of God, into that exact place at that exact time. 
this great fish, this very great fish that was prepared by God just happens to be right there, right now, in a vast ocean network of waters. I mean, if you know how much water is there on the earth, this is an amazing thing. At this exact moment in time, at this exact place, that which Nineveh trembles before just happens to be waiting there with his mouth open. The sign of Jesus, the burial of the man. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which, had hewn, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. Something prepared ahead of time, a sepulcher. And it symbolizes that which we all deserve because of sin. It has been prepared. That picture of sin's control, final death. It's there and its mouth is open at the very time. There's an empty tomb waiting. And guess what? Jesus gets swallowed up into it. We were deserving of this position, but Jesus instead is wrapped up and placed into this tomb. Matthew 27. Now the next day that followed the day of the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that the deceiver said, while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away. And say unto the people, he is risen from the dead. So the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, you have a watch. Go your way. Make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, or the tomb sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. So now you have the Roman centurions. You have the military force of Rome literally on watch saying, lest someone come in to try and deceive the people, let's put an extra seal upon this tomb. It's already a huge stone that men just can't just roll out of the way. And if Jesus is dead, it's not that easy for him to escape it either. I don't know how you would be doing in the belly of a super croc. Could you imagine your, your, your uh, plans to escape? It's like, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a run on those teeth. I mean, how in the world, if you're in the belly of something, we all know once you're eaten by a super croc, you're just sort of gone. Okay, that's the end of it. And we're not just talking about some fish. You just sort of punch through his belly and, you know, and sneak out the side. We're talking about something that means death. It symbolizes death and control. This guy is dead. Now, I know many of us have pictures of Jonah playing cards. Uh, in, you know, he's like, how does he pass three days? You know, it's just, he just has to put in the time. I would propose, even though it can't be proven one way or the other, that Jonah died. I know you could say, well, what? Why would you say that? Well, because it's called the sign of Jonah, and I'm, not, I'm going to say that Jesus didn't swoon on the cross. Jesus died, and I'm going to make an argument for this and a case for this. However, it makes far more sense that Jonah died, and then life spurts out. I mean, if you want to understand a sign, let's understand it that way. So this isn't just a grave, you know, the normal man's grave. This is a grave with watch put over it, seal put upon it. I mean, none of us could ever get out of a grave in the first place, let alone this one. This is a grave with teeth a foot long. There's no way Jonah's getting out of this. There's no way Jesus could ever get out of this. There's no conspiracy that can hack through this and somehow roll away the stone, break down all the Roman guard around it, and somehow sneak it out. This is an impossible situation. The sign of Jonah, part three, the resurrection of the man. So I'm going to make the proposal that Jonah died. And I'm going to tell you why. Okay, this is actually what Jonah says. It doesn't say that he played cards. And said, I cried, Jonah speaking, by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. 
Out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heard my voice, for thou hadst cast me into the deep in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about. All thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Listen to this. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. This is like a description of Sheol. Yet hast thou brought me up Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption. The same statement that is talked about the Messiah who will be spared from the corruption that comes in death. Yet thou hast brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God, but I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. So it seems that Jonah in the process here is basically making one of those great statements. God, if you get me out of this, I'll do anything for you. And he makes a vow. What do you think his vow is? I'll go to Nineveh. I'll do it. God, I recognize my disobedience. I recognize it. In this belly, he seems to vow a vow. And he's not in a good state. This guy is, I mean, he seems to be in a very darkened place. And you look at this next line. In the midst of that place of repentance, there is a statement in the Hebrew that is so shocking in light of the sign of Jesus. He says, salvation is of the Lord. And in the Hebrew, that is Yeshua, Yehovah. Jesus is Jehovah. Yeshua is the Old Testament name for Jesus. And it means salvation is of the Lord, Jehovah. So Jesus is Jehovah. What a strange thing to yell out. That, now that's how we're interpreting it today. But we see something. We have a key to stick in the lock. Our God is a savior. Our God rescues us. And what is the next thing that's going to happen? That fish is going to open its mouth. That which has always held back this people, that which could never happen and will always gain the final victory was death until now. This is impossible. How could a man who is swallowed up, who repents and who finds salvation in Yeshua, and the Lord spoke unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah un- upon the dry land. The sign of Jesus. Part three, the resurrection of the man. Uh, he, guys, he's not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again? And they remembered his words. And he said unto them, Be not affrighted, be not afraid, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. Well, uh, I just, I'm here to tell you, he's risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. It's a strange statement. Behold the place where they laid him. Now, I, so this is part of what I want to build on now. There's a sign that is given. And it all comes back to the fact that we are supposed to look upon something. We are supposed to behold something. What are we to behold? Come and see where they laid him. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, come, see the place where the Lord lay. Are you going to see him there? No, but what are you going to see? You're going to see that symbol of that which has always controlled you, the final wage of, of, of your sin. And you're going to see its mouth wide open. And you're going to realize that that which was in it has come forth and overcome it. The sign of Jonah. That which ruled the house has been defeated. The good news in the streets of Cinnabar. 
the messengers of the resurrection run throughout the city of destruction and yell, one greater than the power of sin has come. Come and see. Look where he once lay for three days. The grave sits here stunned, unable to speak, and with gaping wonder it stares in awe at its defeat. Isn't it an amazing thought to think of what the grave would have looked like? It would have been an open mouth that cannot shut itself. It's embarrassed. I mean, can you, can you get a more awkward and naked situation for a grave? Then it's like, uh, grave, I thought you swallowed people up. I thought you defeated me. I thought you won all battles. Every one of us was subservient to you. But, hey, I, I thought you had someone in you. But what, what happened to him? The grave can't answer. It has no answer. The stone is rolled away and it sits there gaping. For it proved unable to hold him down. He has made a public spectacle of all the powers of darkness. For death, our great enemy, has been defeated by him. And the sin and flesh that ruled this house no longer has legal right to master our lives. Come see the great fish stinking on the shore of the Tigris. Come, guys. I know what has ruled you in the past. I know what has eaten your descendants and your relatives. I know the, the fear we have lived in with this fish. But come, join me. Come and see where the fish lie. Come and see. This prophet has come forth out of it, has shown that he has mastery and power over it. And as a result, the sign of Jonah is a man. It's a man that has overcome that which once ruled. Come and see the place where the Lord lay. I will ransom them from the power of the grave, God promises in the Old Testament. I'll redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. See, most of us don't quite know how to handle that. A grave, he's going to like destroy a grave. A grave is a symbol of that which has the final opportunity and right to devour us. If you sin, you get the grave or the grave gets you. And so the grave holds out that promise and says, they've sinned, so I have a legal position to take them, and you can't stop me. But in Hosea, God gives a promise. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The sign of the man. He will prove to master that which masters everyone else. What masters everyone else? Sin. The grave. He mastered it. You know that even the way he spoke to his disciples, who came from Galilee, by the way, Fishermen. They were fishermen. I mean, isn't that an amazing statement? And Peter, who's called the son of Jonah. Jesus refers to him as the son of Jonah. You know who Jesus is? The son of David. Does that mean he was the direct descendant like David was his father? No. God was his father. He's the descendant of David. And so he's referred to as the son of David. Peter's referred to as the son of Jonah. Isn't that an interesting statement? And guess where he grew up? In the same place Jonah came out of. You know, it actually makes sense. That's how Jesus refers to him. And so the son, the one that will come forth out of that mighty prophet, you know that Jonah brought about the greatest revival in the history of earth up to that point in time? 
At minimum, 120,000 people were converted in Nineveh through his preaching. And guess what? He didn't even want them to be. You see, that which shows this sign, that which bears witness of this sign, literally will change the face of the earth. The foreshadow of its power is great. And what does Peter, the son of Jonah, become? The greatest revivalist in the history of the world. Never has there been a man that brought about a greater revival. And it wasn't just once. All through the country, all through the world. Then Peter. Peter is the son of Jonah. And he's bearing witness of a sign. Who ran to the grave and saw it empty? Peter saw the sign. You know what sign Jesus even spoke to him? They'd toiled all day and all night fishing. And then Jesus gets in the boat. He says, throw your nets over to this side. And they're like, uh, Lord, there's no fish over there. We've been trying all night. Throw your, throw your nets over. Who masters the fish? Jesus. They brought in so many fish that it was sinking the boat. It filled an entire boat. Who's in control of the fish? And it's the language to a fisherman. Because a fisherman knows that he has no power over fish. And that's the way we are. We're all fishermen. And our livelihood comes from somehow, some way, trying to get fish out of this ocean, out of these waters. And yet God comes into our life and says, I've defeated that. I have power and authority over it. Don't fear how you're going to survive on this earth, how you're going to eat your next meal. I have power over it. Throw your net over to the side. What? But there's no fish. I can't get fish. And he says, I can. I can do it. The sign of Jonah. The fish are mastered. Who was the sign given to? Peter. The sign of the man. He will prove to master that which masters everyone else. Jesus declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. This declared him to be the son of God. He is who he says he is. Do you see that empty tomb? Yes. He truly is the son of God. So they ran both together and the other disciple did outrun Peter. So John is writing and indirectly he seems to be bragging about the fact that he outrun Peter. I can just see their relationship in heaven. It's like, how come that got into the scriptures? There's all sorts of things. Even John's about to say, there's so much that happened that it cannot be written or cannot be put into books lest the whole world be filled with it. And yet that line is in scripture. So they ran both together and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. So that means John the apostle arrived first at the sepulcher, at the grave. And he stooping down and looking in saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then came Simon Peter following him and went into the grave, the sepulcher, and saw the linen clothes lying and the napkin, and that, was about, that which was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes. But they were wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. Now, if you saw some linens folded up, I don't know how that would affect your life. But what would seeing a little napkin that used to cover the face do to you? Okay, it's just like, well, it's just a napkin. However, there's something more to this story. They're seeing a sign. What are they seeing? They're seeing the very symbol of the wages of sin. The very symbol of what we all deserve. Overcome. Conquered. Just as he said. He did it. And so John is saying, I ran to that grave. I hesitated. Peter came storming in, which is very symbolic of even Peter. In the scripture, he was even in, in uh, history, he's described as a massive man, big, huge fisherman. 
and he ran straight in. You see, there's something about Peter running straight in that I like, defying death. Who runs into a grave? Who does that? Just bold, bald face, just runs straight past him. At least John has some sense. However, John, seeing the boldness of Peter, follows. Sort of like us. See, the early church has gone before us. They've entered in, they've seen it, and then we come in. Are we going to follow what, Peter, what John did? He saw and believed. You see, we don't see because we actually walk into the, that actual tomb. We see it in and through the word of God, the revelation. And John has given us witness, and he's saying, look, guys, imagine the stone rolled away. Imagine that there's an opening. It's like a mouth that's open wide, defeated. It has no response. It cannot shut again. And inside are the evidences that one once lay there, but no more. The ancient model for the death defier. So we have some great models in Scripture. I mean, some great ones. I mean, I think of some of my favorites, like the three uh, mighty men of David that overhear David's longing for a, a cup of cool water from the well of Bethlehem. And what do they do? They defy death. They go sprinting into an enemy stronghold to get a cup of water. Is that the stupidest thing you've ever heard? Well, wait till you begin to unfold Christian history. This is how Christians live. We defy that which opposes us. Why? Because we hear the whispering longings of our Lord. Oh, for a cup of cool water from the well of Bethlehem. He wants a cup of cool water. Let's go. So here we are in one of the most difficult, dangerous situations in all history. An entire nation has been delivered by God from the hands of the Egyptians and backed up to the Red Sea. You see, God has evidenced in ten different miracles, plagues, and he's shown his power over the Egyptians and over their gods. Who's more powerful? God is. And yet, the very first steps, and by the way, what is the last plague on? It's on Passover. And you know that this is a three-day journey? So what is this symbolic of? Resurrection. Okay, so what we're at is a parting, is a removal of a stone, is a removal of a blockage, because the, the Egyptians have more power than us. And they're sitting there, all the Israelites are staring back at their enemies. They have mountains on this side, a mountain on this side, an Egyptian army over here, and an entire sea behind them. Gulp. Who wins in this situation? We all know. The Egyptians are going to win. And yet... You must include Jehovah, the I am that I am, into this story. And when you do, the entire Passover lamb is a picture of what he's given. You know what the name of this sea is? The Red Sea. The picture of that which he has purchased, which rescues you and destroys your enemy. The Red Sea. And they back up after the great victory, the great Passover. They find themselves three days out in a very harrowing situation. And they all pick up rocks and turn towards Moses. According to Flavius Josephus, they were ready to stone Moses for bringing them into this situation. So, how does it look when your Messiah dies and is buried? What a bad idea this is. And yet he promised to rise again. You see, there's always hope. You see, that grave cannot keep him down. Do you see it? Do you see what God sees, what he promises. What it says is Moses despised all dangers. 
out of his trust in God. This is what Flavius Josephus says. This isn't what it says in scripture. This is just the historical account from the Jews. He said, it is no better than madness at this time to despair of the providence of God. If God has brought us this far, do you think he's going to stay in the grave? Come on, people. Come on. He fulfilled every other promise. He said that he will rise again. Let us maintain hope. Let us understand that the one who has been buried has sent forth to defeat that grave. You see, Moses was so audacious. Talk about sprinting towards death and defying death. He's staring at the most powerful military force in all of, well, at that time in history, which was the Egyptians. Mountain on this side, mountain on this side. He's surrounded by a whole bunch of women, children, and like goats and lambs and cows. It's like, what are you going to do? How are you going to fight them off? These are brick makers. They have no weapons. Gulp. And then on this side, what does he see? A body of water that you can't walk through. Okay, we're in a bad situation. Here's what Moses says. God brought us here. God possesses this situation. Do you think he's surprised by it? Do you think he's lost in, in the morass of confusion? It's like, oh no, what did I bring my people? Oh no! You see, you have situations in your life that are staring you in the face right now. And you have Egyptians coming at you from this side. Maybe you have two mountains you know, on either side and then you have a Red Sea over here. What are you gonna do? Well, I say you trust God. You despise the dangers. You defy it. And you say, watch what my God will do. Watch. Moses said, he can, Moses said our God can make these mountains flat. Our God can destroy this entire Egyptian army. He can cause us to fly out of here. I mean, he literally said that. Fly, an entire nation. Now, this is Flavius Josephus' account. Okay, maybe he embellished. Or he could part this sea and we could walk across it on dry land. Do you think that way? Is that the way you reason? Do you see an empty tomb? Do you realize that your God has already overcome this situation? Do you recognize that he's already defeated that which opposes you? You have victory. You can walk in it. And it came to pass when the Philistine arose and came and drew nigh to meet David that David hasted and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. David had already received a sign. You know that it even says in Flavius Josephus' account of David that Samuel the prophet whispered to him at the table after the anointing and said, what you set forth to do, God will enable you to do. He will protect you and be a shield about you. So David walked with a sense of immortality in his role. And when a lion came to take one of his sheep, he sprinted after him and broke his jaw and took it back. When a bear came and took one of his sheep, he sprinted after it. He sprinted towards the greatest dangers. Now, what is he st what's staring him in the face? Goliath. And depending on how you measure a cubit, Goliath could be 12 and a half feet tall. 12 and a half feet tall, an undefeated warrior. No one could possibly bring him down. And David, as a little kid, strolls into the battle site, sees that giant, says, is there not a cause? And what does it say that David did? It says that David hasted. Do you know what that means? The word, Hebrew word, mahar, to sprint. To sprint with liquid ferocity as a lion towards his prey. Uh, David, don't you know the size difference here? I mean, you, you can't win this battle. He knows that God is greater than that which opposes him. He knows. The question is, do you? 
Are you sprinting towards your circumstances right now? Or are you cowering? Are you shrinking back from death? Are you shrinking back from that which opposes you? Or are you sprinting towards it? Germanicus. There's a couple in this church that gave me a video called Polycarp. I don't know if, you've, if any of you have seen the movie Polycarp. But there's a character, and it's a young boy named Germanicus. And Polycarp's the main character, but there's this younger uh, character named Germanicus, which I thought was interesting because in knowing the history of the martyrs, Germanicus and Polycarp did die around the same time. And so in this movie, it ties their relationship together. And it's such a, a powerful scene. But Germanicus is, at one point in time in the movie, he actually doesn't deny Christ, but he cowers and he shrinks back. And then Polycarp exhorts him and reminds him of that empty tomb, reminds him of the power of the cross, reminds him how to be manful in his Christianity. And so he's lying in a prison cell knowing he's going to be fed to wild beasts and he reads a letter from Polycarp. And I mean, that letter is something special. And basically Polycarp challenges him, exhorts him to behave when he faces the beasts in the, in the arena, to behave manfully. Oh, I love that. I was telling some, some guys this week, I need to have a message called manfully. Uh, I mean, that's just a great statement. But Germanicus, then it shows him in this scene, and it's you know a, a, a movie that didn't have probably as big a budget as Lord of the Rings, okay? And so how do they show an arena? And it's actually pretty creative how they did it, but the, he's thrown out into the arena in a pile, in a heap, and the beasts are starting to stir. And what you see him do is he rises up. I mean, just moves me. Anytime I've ever seen boldness in the face of death, it stirs me. There's something about it that just resonates at the deepest part of my being. Now, I'm naturally a coward, so I'm not going to say just because I'm attracted to these things that I am that way. I esteem it. I want it. I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get it. I want this message in me. And so Germanicus, a young guy, I mean, the guy was probably 16, rises up, stares at the beast's and then the scene cuts, right? And then you see a, a young girl crying and, and Polycarp is comforting her and she wasn't there to witness what happened. And she's like, why would God do this? Why would, why would God allow evil men to take Germanicus? And Polycarp says, you must know something. You must know something. Germanicus wasn't taken. He gave himself. And little one, you also must know, he ran towards the wild beasts. Whoa. A 16-year-old. Just imagine running towards the beasts saying, my God has overcome death. I greet you as a friend for this is life itself. To live is Christ, but to die, if this is my assignment, to die is gain. Sprint! That's what I want in my soul. That's what I want in us as a church. Not just in our final death but in every daily death we face, that we do not shrink back, but we boldly run knowing our God has emptied that tomb. He has emptied the power of death. It has no fangs. It cannot bite down again. It's like a stick is in its mouth and the jaw of the supercrock is locked open. You can crawl in and out and not be touched. You will not be defeated. He's already defeated it. Germanicus, Germanicus, a young man but a true Christian, being delivered to the wild beasts on account of his faith, behaved with such astonishing courage that several pagans became converts to a faith which inspired such fortitude. Are you a death defier? 
A Christian is a devil defier, a sin defier, a pride defier, a lust defier, a fear defier. I want you to think about whatever it is that is staring you in the face. Some of you, it's just practical circumstances right now. The older you get, the more you begin to realize that practical circumstances just don't go away. And they sometimes seem to grow. You're like, okay, I think, God, I've learned this lesson. And then the next challenge you face is bigger. The next wild beast that comes into the arena is, wow, you sprint towards one and then they grow up. You see, God is showing his glory. He's showing in and through how we handle these difficulties, how we handle these wild beasts in our life. He's showing an onlooking crowd. He's showing how Christians overcome, not because of what's in us naturally, in our own pockets, but what has been bequeathed to us in and through his resurrection. He has overcome that grave. And we now walk in the strength and the bravery and the boldness and the courage that he affords us. He has set for us an example and hasn't just said, figure it out for yourself, try and follow me. He said, I'm going to give you my very life, my very power to be able to do it. In anxiety to fire, you have anxiety knocking, it's overcome. In unforgiveness to fire, if any of you have been hurt in here, you know how hard and how strong unforgiveness can be and bitterness and resentment can crowd around your soul and say, you can't get out. Except I want you to rise up today in the power of resurrection life and say, you're defeated. You do not hold me down anymore. A bitterness to fire, a gossip to fire, a critical spirit to fire, that which would destroy us as a body has been defeated. These are not forces too great for you. Your tongue may have been controlled by the enemy, but no more. That enemy is defeated, and there is no power on this earth that can control your behavior if you are a Christian. You are belong to the spirit of grace and his behavior will be your behavior when you choose to walk in the reality of the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Come and see. That which had previously controlled you has been overcome. Let's take a fresh look at it, guys. Do you see it? Come, come. Do you see it? How are you approaching the grave? How are you approaching the wild, that great super croc on the beach? If you've always been afraid of that super croc, you know how hard it would be when someone says, the super croc's on the beach. You're like, what? Yeah, come and see. You're like, no way. No way. And that's the way we as Christians function. There's a missing piece of information there, guys. And you could say, I know what it is. You're supposed to say the super croc is dead. Come and see. The grave is empty. Come and see. None of us want to run to death. But if death is defeated, you don't fear it. Why would you fear a grave? Someone's preparing a grave for you, Eric. Your grave is waiting. It's like, huh? Add the next piece. But the grave has been defeated. You see, I'm not going to fear death if it's defeated. It has no grip on me. Life is what I live in. And even if this mortal body fails, I have a new body awaiting me. I will live. I am in Christ Jesus. And I have such a hope that resounds in me. Resurrection morning has come. And we are here to celebrate together the fact that death has no more sting. Sin no longer has victory in our life. It can no longer reap its final judgment on us. Jesus Christ has borne it for us and he has defeated it and he has broken the jowls of sin and no longer can they bite down on us. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Looney, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. 
Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.